Would you open God's Word this morning to Isaiah chapter 64? As we prepare our hearts to hear from God, let's open God's Word to Isaiah chapter 64. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you are welcome to grab one of the Bibles providing the chairs in front of you. We'd love for you to take the Bible home and, uh, and use it, uh, read it. If you have any questions about anything you read in the Bible, we'd love to engage you with those questions and, and answer. Um, but this morning, let's read God's Word from Isaiah 64. And you may find this passage in our few Bibles on page number 623. Here is God's Word for us this morning. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you are angry, and we sin. In our sins, we have been a long time, and, we shall, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. There's no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? This is the word of the Lord for us in our hearts. Would you bow, bow your head with me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word for our hearts. Father, we thank you. Not only for times when you reveal yourself as you are in your word, but we thank you also for the way your people respond to you in prayer and seek you. Father, we pray that this passage we have just heard would speak to our hearts, would draw our hearts to you, that would increase a yearning in us for your ways. We pray this for the glory of Christ and through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit among us. In this name we pray. Amen. Friends, the passage we just read is the last time in the book of Isaiah where we hear Isaiah speak. This is it. The rest of the book of Isaiah, the last two chapters, will be God speaking 
as a response to Isaiah's words here. These words that we have just read are a prayer. It's a prayer largely of confession. A prayer in which Isaiah intercedes and asks God to intervene in the midst of his people. But a big part of God's people at the time Isaiah is writing this is their state of rebellion and sin. That's why this morning the theme that we are looking at is yearning for God with penitent hearts. Penitent hearts are hearts that acknowledge sin and are willing to turn from it. This prayer that Isaiah uh, is uttering, is, is describing, is bringing to God is a prayer that started in chapter 63, uh, which we looked at last week, uh, where Isaiah begins his prayer first with, if you remember, recounting the love of God, the great love of God in the history of his people. In this prayer, Isaiah is yearning for God to look down from heaven to return. And Isaiah is not yearning for God just for his own sake. No, Isaiah is yearning for God for the restoration of God's people. What a challenge this is for us as well to remember that our prayers and our yearnings for God should not be merely for personal needs, but also that our heart should yearn to God for the restoration of His people. That's why we encourage one another as as members, members of this congregation to be regularly praying for one another, to be praying for the life of this congregation, and to be praying for the life of other congregations around us. Last week, we concluded our service with a song, Revive Us Again. What a fitting song to close um, after looking at this prayer of asking God to have mercy upon God's people. Well, this morning, we continue to delve into Isaiah's prayer, and we examine what was involved in Isaiah's prayer for yearning for God. And we look at four Elements, four aspects, four truths, four parts that are involved in Isaiah's yearning for God that we see in this particular chapter. The four things are confidence in God, second, readiness to deal with our sin, third, turning to God without any conditions, and fourth, reliance upon God's mercy. Confidence in God, readiness to deal with our sin turning to God without conditions, and reliance upon God's mercy. These four parts are present in Isaiah's prayer as he is yearning for God. And my prayer is that as we are encouraged and challenged to consider yearning for God, that we would have these elements as part of our own yearning for the Lord. Let's look at each of these. Yearning for God involves, first of all, confidence in God. We saw last week, when we looked at chapter 63, that Isaiah longed for God, that he asked that God would look down, that God would return to his people and restore them. In chapter 64, Isaiah's yearning for God continues, but it has an important development, a new change. Isaiah's yearning for God reveals confidence in what God can do if he were to come down. Isaiah describes for us what he believes God could do if God were to come down. Look at verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, 
that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. What is Isaiah confident of that, God, that would happen if God were to come down? Did you notice the two things? What would happen at the presence of God? Mountains would quake at His presence. In other words, creation itself would be disturbed and shaking at God's coming down. Two, a second thing that Isaiah is confident would happen is that nations would tremble at God's presence. In other words, God's coming down to earth will instill fear and trembling, not just in creation, but among the nations that have not known Him. Friends, do we share this confidence that Isaiah had in God's great and fearful presence? Do we believe, like Isaiah did, that God's coming down will disturb creation and the nations? We like often to think of God's presence among us as a, as a cozy experience of, of comfort and joy. And, by the way, for God's children, those are true realities. Comfort, joy, restoration. But Isaiah also sees another facet, another effect of the presence of God coming down on earth. It's not just joy and comfort. It's also fear and trembling, particularly for those who oppose God, particularly for those who stay opposed to God. When Isaiah is yearning for God, he's confident that the entire creation and the nations that have not known the Lord would tremble and fear before him. This is the God that we worship. Isaiah is confident in something else about God. We see two more characteristics about what, he think, what Isaiah thinks of God. Isaiah is confident, second of all, that, that, that he is a God who acts for those who wait for him. Look at verse 4. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Isaiah's confidence that God acts for those who wait for him is an especially, especially important confidence in the book of Isaiah. Throughout this book, God has been calling his people to wait for him. Remember Ahaz in chapter 7? When, when the threat came that the Syrians uh, were joining forces with another uh, when, when two of the neighboring nations were joining forces against Israel, and Ahaz, rather than to rely and wait on the Lord to deliver them, he sought to make an alliance with Assyria, using another enemy to fight these two nations. From, throughout the book of Isaiah, God has been calling His people to wait for Him, to wait for His deliverance, and not seek the deliverance that they could accomplish on their own. Isaiah 30, 18, blessed are all those who wait for him. Isaiah 40, 31, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strengths. Isaiah 49, 23, those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Yet the book of Isaiah is a book that recounts a people who have often failed to wait for the Lord. What about you? Is your yearning for God characterized by this confidence that God acts for the people who wait for Him? 
How can you tell if you have this confidence? Well, here are some ways. These are not the only ways, but here are some ways whether or not you have this confidence in a God who acts for those who wait for Him. You wait for God even when, you, when His response does not come right away. Or we are committed to do things God's way and choose not to rely on our human strength or strategy. Or we're committed to seeking God in prayer and reading His Word even when things around us just don't go the way we expect. Waiting for God. Having confidence that God is the God who acts for those who wait for Him. A third confidence that, that Isaiah has in God is in verse 5, that God meets those who joyfully work righteousness. Isaiah is confident that God wants to come to his people, but who are the people whom God wants to meet with? God is a God who wants to meet with a people who joyfully work righteousness. When you think about living your life rightly in God's sight, do you do so joyfully or begrudgingly? God wants to meet those who joyfully work righteousness. Why is that important? Because if there's joy when we seek to live rightly before God, it shows that our hearts have truly embraced a life that desires to live joyfully before Him. If we, if we try to work, live righteously before Him with a grudging heart, that's not what God wants. God is pleased. God dwell, wants to dwell among people who joyfully want to live rightly before God. Now, there's something important about these two confidences, these last two ones that Isaiah had about God. Isaiah was confident that God wants to work for those who wait for Him, that God wants to meet with those who joyfully work righteousness. But in both of these confidences, Israel has failed miserably. The entire book of Isaiah is a, is, is a book that recounts a people who have been impatient with God and a people who have chosen to live their lives in a way that was pleasing to them and not pleasing to their Creator. What about us? Is our confidence in God merely that a confidence that God exists or merely a confidence in a God who's able to do great things? Does our confidence in God include that He expects His people to wait for Him? That He expects and desires His people to be joyful in living for Him? Do we have confidence in a God who has these particular expectations of His people? So as Isaiah yearned for God, this is what Isaiah's confidence in God looked like. But as Isaiah looked at God and what he expects people to how to live before Him. Oh, it did not take Isaiah very long to realize that they have failed utterly in following and living according to God's expectations and desires for His people. So Isaiah moves, second of all, as he yearns for God, he realizes he needs to be ready to deal with the sin of his own people. So yearning for God, second of all, a second major point, yearning for God involves readiness to deal with our sins. How does Isaiah show his readiness to deal with, with sin? Well, first of all, Isaiah is willing to show the extent of sin. Then Isaiah is willing to show the effects of sin. And finally, Isaiah is going to show the manifestation of sin. 
Let's look at the, the, the way Isaiah deals with the readiness to deal with our sin. Isaiah confesses the extent of their sin. Look at verse 5. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In other words, Isaiah recognizes that even though God showed his anger against his people's sin, the people continued to walk in sin. They were stubborn in their walk of sin. Also, Isaiah is not minimizing their past rebellion. In verse 5 again, he says, In our sin we have been a long time. In other words, Isaiah recognizes that their sinfulness was not just one act. It wasn't merely a recent development of sinfulness. Isaiah recognizes that they have been in sin for a long time. Friends, sometimes when, um, when we are encouraged and challenged to confess our sin to one another, to someone else, um, sometimes we are tempted, even in those moments of confession, sometimes we are tempted to confess it, but in, with a way that minimizes it, if you know what I mean. We present it as if it's just a, a very small thing. As if it just happened yesterday. As if it, oh, if it's a recent thing that, that I started struggling with. When in reality, it's been going on for years. But we have a way in us to, to sort of put a, a little coat over it and minimize it, even in the way we sometimes go about confessing it. And here's Isaiah saying to God, We have been in this sin, in rebellion, for a long time. Isaiah also recognizes the effects of sin. Isaiah continues the diagnosis of it and says, look at verse 6. He says, we all have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Did you pick up on the, on the, on the effects that Isaiah shows sin to have upon us? We have all become like one who is unclean. In the Old Testament, it was the lepers who were supposed to call themselves unclean. Unclean. I love how one commentator says, Unclean is the leper's cry. And the word speaks here of unfitness for the fellowship of God and exclusion from the Lord's people. That's what sin does, dear friends. Then our, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Now, this does not mean that all the righteous acts of all the people everywhere are like filthy rags. Isaiah speaks about his people at his time. Instead of acting righteously before God, their deeds became like stained garments. They were not acting righteously, even though they thought they did. That's why, dear friends, we can never cover our sin with good works. Good deeds never wash away our sin. Quite the opposite, our sin stains our good works. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Sin threatens our very existence. Sin has brought death into our world. So no wonder that Isaiah describes the effects of sin as making us fade like a leaf. But notice what exactly is the cause of us being taken away. Now, I want you to think about when Isaiah is writing this or the scenario around which Isaiah is writing this. He's, taught, he's writing around the time envisioning the Babylonian exile when the Babylonians took them away from the land. What Isaiah is talking about here is talking about another taking away. 
a deeper taking away, a more permanent taking away. It's not the taking away that the Babylonians have done uh, or were to do on God's people uh, to exile them. It's a taking away that sin causes. Sin makes us fade away. Our iniquities drive us away like the wind. You thought the Babylonians were our greatest enemy? Isaiah says, oh Lord, no. Our sins make us fade away, be swept away. But that's the the power, that's the effect that sin has. We think that it brings joy. We think that it brings satisfaction in the moment. And for the moment and for a while, it will. Sin eventually will make us fade away and take us, sweep us like the wind. Isaiah is real with the effects of sin upon us. Friends, sin has great power. And lastly, the last picture of the effect is in verse 7. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Here's a big side effect of God's hiding his face away from his people. That he, God, allowed his people to experience the effects of their sin in their lives. And, and this last effect, this picture, is just a marvelous picture. God made his people melt in the hands, not of the Babylonians. Even, the, even though physically we might say, it's the Babylonians that brought the destruction, and that, that would be true. Or it's the Assyrians that brought the, the ruins, and that would be true. But Isaiah recognizes that God made his people melt in the hands of their sins, of their iniquities. It's as if iniqui- our iniquities have hands to grab us, to hold us tight. And to keep us there until we melt. Friends, don't discount. Don't disregard the tragic effects of, of sin if we keep holding it in, a heart, in our hearts. Isaiah identifies the effects of sin. And then thirdly, Isaiah identifies the hopelessness of sin. In verse 7, he says, There's no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. But I wonder if you recognize that rebellion against God manifests not necessarily by doing evil things that society might call evil, but merely ignoring God is a manifestation of our sinfulness. Choosing not to call upon God, choosing not to seek Him, is a manifestation of our rebellion. And we do so willfully. Isaiah is not surprised. That's what sin does to us. It leads us not to call upon the name of the Lord. Friend, if we are left in our sin, if God leaves us in our sin, none of us would call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. It is true. The Bible says anyone who would call on the name of the Lord would be saved. But the Bible also says that no one does in their own strength, with their own initiative, unless God works In the heart of the sinner, no one, and Isaiah recognizes no one, no one is calling upon your name. Friends, none of us like getting caught in sin. None of us like getting caught with sin. None of us um, want to expose sin naturally in part of our natural desire. It's not in there. But there's something worse than getting caught 
in sin. There's something worse than getting caught, than, than uh, getting, getting caught with sin, and it's not to get caught in sin. Because if God hides his face from us, he leaves us to melt in the hands of our sin. And long term, that is more devastating than being confronted with our sin here and now. But it's part of what it means to be a church. Part of what it means to be a congregation that are committed to one another is that we want to be a place where it is safe to confess our sin to one another. We want to be a place where it is safe to confront sin in each other in a loving way. We want to be a place where accountability and fight against sin is is part of a normal thing. And it would be unnormal not to do it. That's why we encourage we encourage Christians to not only to visit churches and to sort of um, attend regularly in churches, but to commit to a church, to join a church, to link arms with a group of believers who are committed to watch over one another for the sake of fighting off sin together. Because the effects of sin are devastating. Isaiah, as he's yearning for God, he shows readiness to deal with sin. A third element about yearning for God third aspect of yearning for God, yearning for God involves turning to God without any conditions. Sin and rebellion have brought many changes to the people of God in Isaiah's day. Sin has brought the exile, the devastations, the ruins. But Isaiah appeals to God, to something that has not changed in God, and that is that God is still their father. Based on that status, Isaiah is appealing to God's mercy not to leave his people to be the object of his anger forever. Look at verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. I understand no one's seeking your name. No one's calling upon you. No one takes the initiative to seek your face. God, you are our Father. And then Isaiah goes on. And gives two more pictures. We are the clay. And you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. The picture of a clay and the potter has been used in the Bible several times. It describes our attitude of total surrender to what God wants to do with us. No more conditions. No more, no more deals with God. God, I'll, I'll do this if you do this. I'll I'll. I'll Pay more attention to your ways if you really help me get this job or help me get out of this mess. No more trying to be in the driver's seat. We come to see the authority of God, the good authority of God over us. Isaiah comes to recognize that if there's any hope for restoration of their pitiful state when none of them would seek God, that God must sovereignly work again to reshape them in a new image, just like a potter would take the clay, put it all together again, and start again to shape a new, a new piece. Some people have a hard time to let God do them whatever God wants. The greatest enemy in our repentance, dear friends, is ourselves. For our, in our own pride, we don't want to let anyone else give shape to our lives. That's why one of God's strategies in converting us, in bringing us to himself, is first to bring us to the end of ourselves, to let us bite and eat and, 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 and have all the, uh, the ruins of our lives, to show us 
that if we try to live life in our own ways, it will lead into ruin. So when we see our hopelessness in the midst of the ruins, we might be willing to turn the control over to God and say, God, I am done. Would you take over my life? These two pictures are are Isaiah's way of declaring to God, do with us whatever you please. We've tried and we we have failed miserably. You have authority over us. Now we recognize you as the potter, as the the one who who creates the the artifact, as as our Father. The attitude of the heart is the attitude that turns rightly to the Lord with no more conditions. Friends, I want to ask you, when you turn to God, if you have turned to God in the past, is this how you have turned to the Lord? Turning to God with no more conditions? There's some of you among us, perhaps, who have still not turned to God, and you're not sure you want to turn to God. Or perhaps you you wonder if it's worth turning to God. Oh, friends, you may not think now that it's worth turning to God until we come to the end of our existence and we're faced with a God in the presence of whom the mountains quake and shake. Let's turn to Him now. Turn to Him now. He is our Father. He is able to remake us and reshape us into His likeness. Is there an area of your life where you have still not given God the right to do whatever He pleases? Say to God, I'm the clay. You are the potter. This shows Isaiah's heart. Turn to God with no more conditions. And finally, Isaiah yearns for God. His yearning for God involves reliance upon God's mercy. Isaiah's prayer ends with requesting that God would not keep his anger towards his people forever. Look at verse 9. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Asking God not to be so terribly angry against his people goes hand in hand with asking him not to remember their sins. If God would remember sin forever, his anger would never, ever go away. Isaiah is boldly asking God, put away your anger. But Isaiah is also saying, by not remembering their sins. The only way for God not to remember our sin, dear friends, is if God covers our sin. Now, I'm not talking about covering the sin like pretend like it's not there. Let's just put it under the rug and not, and not deal with it. That's not the way God covers sin. In the Bible, the way God covers sin is by atoning for it. Did you know that the word atonement is literally a word for covering? Atone is to cover. To cover the sin. And God prepared the, the covering always to be a substitute of blood. In the Old Testament, it was a substitute of the blood of the animals that atoned for people's sins, covered people's sins. But those, those sacrifices were temporary. They were never permanent. They were looking forward to a permanent covering that God would provide. And that covering was to the blood of His own Son who would die as a substitute for the rebellion of God's people so that all those who would repent of their sins and all those who would trust in Jesus to save them would have their sins covered. Well, friends, 
if you have never experienced the covering of your sins through the blood of Christ, I call on you, I encourage you to turn to God. Ask God to save you. Call upon His name, and He will save you. You can do so right now before the service is even dismissed. In your mind, in your heart, ask God to save you. If you'd like to know more about what that means, we would love to talk to you as soon as the service is dismissed. Or we would encourage you to talk to someone that invited you to church this morning or to another believer, another Christian. Friends, learn to to understand that God can only avert His anger from us if He puts His our sins away. And the only way to do that is if those sins are covered through the blood of Christ. Isaiah looks at the ruins of the land. He's looking at the desolations of Jerusalem. And he recognizes and he realizes, Lord, if there's any hope for this to be restored, if there's any hope for us to be restored, it's in you. So Isaiah closes this prayer with two questions. And he asks God, will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Isaiah is longing for God to intervene. But by ending with these two questions, Isaiah is appealing to God's mercy to bring about these changes. Friends, learning to live daily by the mercy of God is an adventure with God. It reminds us that we are not in control, that we depend upon our Creator. And even the changes we desperately need to experience in our lives are changes that we need God to do. Otherwise, they would be very short-lived. So yearning for God involves four things from this passage. It involves confidence in God. It involves readiness to deal with our sin. It involves turning to God without any conditions. And it involves reliance upon God's mercy. And you know what? You may wonder, is it worth it? Is it really worth it? Will God answer Isaiah's prayer? Come back next Sunday to see the answer to Isaiah's prayer as we will engage in some of the most glorious chapters of the entire Old Testament. Isaiah 65 and then Isaiah 66. God answers the prayer of those who yearn for God with penitent hearts. Let's pray. Father, you always, always over-deliver. Lord, what you promise, you will do. And you will do in greater abundance than anything we can imagine or hope for. But Lord, we confess that in our times of journeying, of sojourning on this earth, when we are waiting for you to answer, it often feels, our hearts often feel distraught and discouraged. Father, we want to yearn for you. We want to yearn being confident in your greatness. We want to yearn for you being willing to and ready to deal with our sin, being willing to turn to you with no more conditions, and being willing to rely ourselves fully on your mercy. Father, help us to realize that if there's any hope of restoration in us, it's for us. It is not because of what's in us but because of what you have done for us in Christ. Father, help us to grow in that confidence in you. We pray that in the name of Christ.